We are starting, as I mentioned earlier, a four-week sermon series that Jason will kick off for us today. Uh, We will be first in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. As you are able, would you please stand as I read God's word. Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, and he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is God's word. You may be seated. This morning with a confession, I love Christmas music. Uh, Usually I start listening to Christmas music the day after Halloween, and I end listening to it sometime around Selection Sunday in March. Um, The songs and the albums on heaviest rotation are Charlie Brown Christmas, Ella Fitzgerald Wishes You a Swinging Christmas, Christmas with the Rat Pack. And over the Rhine's snow angel. I said it was a confession because some people may say I like Christmas music too much. This year, mid-October, I dialed up our Christmas playlist in the kitchen. And my wife, Caroline, quickly scolded me. Not yet, she said. It's too early for Christmas music. I can't do it yet. I protested that. 2020 had been a hard year, and nevertheless, it was shelved until November uh, to listen to it in our kitchen. So it's no wonder that I was very happy when I learned that this year's Advent, we would be looking at the biblical songs, the biblical Christmas songs in Luke. They each have a Latin name. We're going to look at the Benedictus, Zechariah's song of a horn of salvation raised for us. Because of his tender mercy, our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. We'll look at the angels' glory of their song at presenting that horn of salvation. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. And we'll look at the nunc dimittitus. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. Simeon's song of praise that his eyes had seen the salvation of God. But this morning we will start with a beautiful piece of scripture, the Magnificat. It's a song composed by a teenage girl. It's a song that speaks to the reality of what every human being does and what every human being is designed to do. That reality is that human beings worship. In fact, we are designed to worship. Worship ascribes ultimate value to something that engages our entirety, 
This morning in our confession, we talked about our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is what worship is, where all of those things are combined in ascribing ultimate value to something. The problem is not that we don't worship. The problem is that we worship the wrong things. Augustine talked about this as having disordered loves, that we love the secondary as primary and we reduce the primary to secondary. Jonathan Edwards talked about our affections being kindled by counterfeit gods. He said the more excellent anything is, the more counterfeits of it there will be, and the most excellent thing is God. C.S. Lewis put it a bit more bluntly. He said that we human beings are far too easily pleased. And Mary's song, I believe, helps us, offers us some correction in our worship. Before we look any further, would you pray with me? Stir up your power, O Lord, and with your great might come among us. God, we are hindered by our sins. So let your bountiful grace and mercy come quickly through your word to help and deliver us through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be all honor and glory now and forevermore. Amen. Well, a few things to put Mary's song into context before we dive into the substance of it. The first is that Mary's song is found in the book of Luke. And Luke was written by Luke, if you look at the beginning of the book, to Theophilus. In fact, he calls him the most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus was a somebody. And Luke almost immediately introduces Theophilus as somebody to two individuals who the culture at that time would have considered nobodies. He introduces Theophilus to Elizabeth, an old barren woman, and he introduces Theophilus to Mary, an engaged pregnant woman. What do we know about these two women? Elizabeth is an old barren woman. And getting pregnant in those days was not like it is today. Getting pregnant in those days was a necessity. Either you had children or you died. You needed children to help you with your work. You needed children to help provide for you when you were older. And not only you needed children, but your clan needed children. Your town needed children. Because if your neighboring town had more children, they didn't beat you at a Friday night football game. They took over your land and they took over your town and they took over your possessions. So you collectively needed children. So becoming pregnant was a big deal. And becoming pregnant for Elizabeth was something she couldn't do. So the news that she was to deliver a son who would end up being John the Baptist for Elizabeth was great and very good news. So good that Elizabeth, in verse 25 of chapter 1, says that her pregnancy has taken away my reproach among people. The Bible tells another story very similar to Elizabeth. It's the story of Hannah, who was a barren woman that we can read about in 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel, we learn that Hannah was provoked grievously by other women because she was unable to have children. Provoked so much, the Bible says that she wept and would not eat. 
And when the Lord granted Hannah a son, she burst into song. You can read the whole thing, and I would encourage you to read the whole thing in 1 Samuel chapter 2. But let me read a portion for us this morning. My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, and those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. Hannah, like Elizabeth, knew what it felt like to have God lift them up, to have their reproach removed. See, barrenness at the time wasn't just the inability to have children. There was also a spiritual element that was connected to it. Barren women were thought to have sinned greatly and were being punished for that sin. So having a child took away not only the ache to have a child in their heart, but their reproach among men. But unlike Hannah and Elizabeth, Mary was not barren. Mary was a pregnant, betrothed woman. She was a virgin. But being a pregnant, betrothed woman in her day was a problem. Deuteronomy chapter 22 verses 23 and 24 instructs us on what would happen, what could happen to a pregnant, betrothed woman. She was executed. She was stoned for her sin, for getting pregnant outside of marriage. So while for Elizabeth and Hannah getting pregnant was a means of having their approach removed, For Mary, becoming pregnant was a means of having a life of reproach. When the angel visited Mary and told her that she would bear the son of the Most High, he was also handing her a scarlet letter. Practically, that news made Mary's life much more difficult. And she knew that becoming pregnant outside of marriage would make her life more difficult. And how did she respond? My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. The same response that Hannah had when her reproach was taken away, Mary has when she is handed a life of reproach. Where does that kind of response come from? Where does that type of worship come from? And how can we worship like Mary? Well, the first thing I think we need to notice about Mary's song of worship is that it is saturated in Scripture. It's a divinely inspired song full of Old Testament allusions and evidences, a faithful upbringing, and a faith that is running through her veins. When you really think about Mary's response and the grounding of Scripture in her song, it is truly amazing. Because Mary was a peasant girl. She didn't have a Bible. Very few people in those days had any written materials. Yet she knows the Bible through and through. And the only way she knows the Bible this well is because she heard it over and over again. She heard it at the synagogue. She heard it in her home. She heard it at the dinner table. She heard it working alongside her parents. She had to have been raised in an environment where God's word 
was at the center. And I think, parents, there's a great lesson for us to be learned here. If we are looking for something to give our kids this Christmas, we cannot give them a better gift than to have and foster a home that is grounded on Scripture. A home where it is read, where it is discussed, where it is applied, and where it is treasured. Mary had this, and it shaped her worship. Why is scripture and being grounded it so fundamental to correct worship? John Calvin answered that question this way. He said that without scripture, we do not comprehend God as he offers himself, but imagine him as we have fashioned him in our own presumptions. And as a result, we are not worshiping God, but a figment and dream of our own hearts. It is only through scripture that we can see who God says he is. John Owen said that scripture is the only outward means for us to know the glory of Christ. So how did this knowledge of scripture shape Mary's worship? It shaped it in that she knew who God was. She knew God's character. And she knew that God worked through great reversals. Reversals where God lifts up the poor and humbles the powerful. And one of the best parts for me in preparing this sermon was to go through all of the Old Testament references in Mary's song. Time does not allow us this morning to go through all of those references, but if you'd like them, I'm happy to give them to you. But these are some of the highlights of the reversals that Mary references in her song. Let's begin with Hannah's song. Indeed, the whole Magnificat echoes Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Hannah had her position reversed. In 1 Samuel chapter 1 verse 11, she asks God, she pleads God to look on the affliction of his servant. And when God does, Hannah bursts into song. 1 Samuel 2, 7 and 8 says, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Hannah's story, a story that Mary knew, is a reversal story. Mary also sings in verse 49 about he who is mighty has done great things. This is a reference to the reversal the Israelites experienced in the exodus from Egypt. Deuteronomy 10, 21 says, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name, you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Israel's story, a story that Mary knew, is a reversal story. Mary also understands, though, that God will humble the proud. For instance, in verse 52, she says, God has brought down the humble from their thrones. This is a reference to the book of Esther and a story found there. Do you remember Haman? Esther 3.1 says that Haman has set his throne above all things. And then just a few chapters later, Haman is hanging high from gallows he had designed for his enemies. 
Haman's story, a story that Mary knew, is a reversal story. Mary knew these stories. She knew the truth of these stories. And it was to these truths that she grounded her scripture. To the truth that God works through great reversals. Scripture was the authoritative foundation for her worship. And it must be the authoritative foundation for our worship. Only when we hear again and again what God has done are we ready to respond in praise and to worship. Mary's worship was grounded on scripture. But not only was her worship grounded on scripture, her worship was also thoughtful. She hadn't just memorized scripture. It wasn't something she just wrotely recited, perhaps the way that we can recite the Pledge of Allegiance. We say the words, but we don't think about it. No, Mary thought about scripture. We know something about Mary's character. We know something about who Mary is. In Luke chapter 2, 19, after the birth of Jesus and the shepherds come to visit her, what does it say that Mary did? She treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Mary was a thoughtful person. Mary's worship was thoughtful. Mary knew how to ponder. She didn't just have scripture as information. She pondered it. She sat with it. She applied it. She applied the character of God to her situation and knew that he would be exactly who he always has been. She thought about how he would work through her humble estate for her good and, in fact, for everyone's good. There's a very interesting thing about the verb tenses that Mary uses in portions of her song. Look, for instance, at verse 49. He who has mighty has done great things for me. Has done. Past tense. Why is this interesting? Because remember, the practical impact of Mary becoming pregnant was that her life had practically gotten harder. Her pregnancy was closer to a death sentence than a great thing in practical terms for her. But she is confident in God's goodness. Biblical scholars refer to her use as the past tense here as aorist, the use of a prophetic past tense. She is so sure of who God is and what he will do that she talks of it as if in the past tense. Therefore, she could say he has done great things for me because she was so confident that he would be who he said he would be. The basis for this confidence is grounded in scripture, but it is fostered by her pondering who God says he is. She had learned how to be still and know that he is God. I think on this score, we have much that we can learn from Mary to learn how to ponder. So let's begin as we think about how we ponder on a macro level and work our way inwards. Malcolm Gladwell has diagnosed our current culture as this. We are information rich and theory poor. We have more information at our fingertips than any other generation in history. And yet we seem less able or perhaps we are less interested in spending the time to make sense of that information. 
In 2008, The Atlantic published an article about how Google was making us stupid. It concluded that we human beings are the real artificial intelligence because we use technology the same way that a rock uses the surface of a water. We skip. We never let it sink down. We skim and we skip from the next place or the next meme or the next tweet. Our artificial, our intelligence, the author concludes, is becoming artificial. Or perhaps you're looking for something more targeted to Christians in the way that we think. Mark Knoll in 1994 published a book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. The problem he diagnosed in the first sentence is that the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there's not much of an evangelical mind. But it's easy to bemoan our culture and at the macro level to say we're not very thoughtful. Let's zoom all the way in to ourselves and consider ourselves for a moment. Are we thoughtful the way Mary is? Am I? Do I ponder God's word like Mary did? Do I roll it over in my mind and apply how God's promises of who he is would apply to me? Early in our marriage, Caroline and I lived in St. Louis, and our pastor was a man named Daniel Doriani, and he impacted our lives in a number of very profoundly positive ways. But for me, nothing has stuck with me quite as much as the way he would talk about we become like that which we behold. He would say it in his sermons, he would say it at informal gatherings, we become like that which we behold. It's been a very beneficial diagnostic tool for me to pause and to think about what is it that I am actually beholding? What is it that I actually ponder? In adult life, we all worship something. There's no such thing as not worshiping. The question really is just what are we worshiping? What are we beholding? What are we pondering? And the sooner we pause and think about that, the better off we will be. See, you are worshiping something. But can you say, like Mary, that my soul magnifies the Lord? My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Does your life enlarge God's glory? Or does it seek your own glory or some other glory? Recently, I listened to a graduation speech by a man who was raised here in Urbana. He went to Yankee Ridge Elementary School. A secular man who struggled with depression gave a speech to a group of graduating seniors. This man, David Foster Wallace, told them that there is no such thing really as atheism. He understood that we all worship something, and he diagnosed problems with what we worship. He told them if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel that you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally bury you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect and being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. 
You see, if you do not worship the sovereign creator of this universe, then the object of your worship, the object of your affection, will eat you alive. So how do you know what you worship? How do you know what you are beholding? Be still. Read God's word and be still. And think about God's word. Ponder it in your mind. John Calvin said that to find out what you worship, you must wholly be at rest that God may work within you. We must yield our will. We must resign our hearts. We must give up all our fleshly desires. In short, we must rest from all activities of our own contriving so that having God working in us, we may rest in him as the apostle teaches. And this is what I believe Mary models for us. She pondered, she was still, and she thought about God's word and how it would apply to her so that when the angel told her that she would deliver the Savior of the world, she responded, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. This is a thoughtful response grounded in Scripture. But what if you've read the Scriptures? And what if you've pondered them and you find yourself unable to worship God? Or you find yourself worshiping something that isn't God? You might even ache to worship God, but you can't find yourself worshiping him. You can't get there from here. What do you do then? Could I encourage you to hang on to that ache? To sit in it for a while? To not try to drown it out, but to sit and to ponder it? Our inclination is oftentimes to drown out the ache in our hearts, to to fill it with noise. We can especially do that in the Christmas season. We can fill it with presents and family and cookies and eggnog and parties. You might object, well, those are good things. And yes, they are. I love all of those things. Perhaps not the eggnog, but I love the Christmas season. But the key is, what is causing the joy? What is causing you to want those good things? Is it just a way of numbing the ache that is inside of you? Is it just a way to fake joy? But you can't fake joy. You can't fake worship. Sure, you can fake some of the outward manifestations of it, but you can't fake worship in your heart. You can't conjure it up within yourself and you can't resolve yourself to God. So how do you express worship like Mary? How can we sing that my soul magnifies the Lord? How can we come to sing that, especially when we find that our soul does not magnify the Lord? This can be a difficult season for many of us. Christmas can be a time of great pain. This year, 2020, has been a very difficult year. This year has been by far the hardest year of my adult life. So that is why I ask you to hang on to the ache that is within you. Ponder what that ache is really longing for. Ponder the difficulties of this year. And then you will become like Mary. And why do I say that? Because God, or because man approaches God most nearly 
when he is in one sense least like him? What can be more unlike the fullness of God than our need? What can be more unlike the sovereignty of God than our humility? What is more unlike his righteousness than our sin? What is more unlike his limitless power than our cries for help? Hang on to your ache and cry for help. See, Mary understood that Christmas doesn't come, the gospel doesn't come to those without need. It doesn't come to cheery Christmas windows at Macy's or to Christmas specials. It comes to brokenness. If Christmas is hard, if this year is hard, it's probably because something or someone let you down. But remember, just as the prophetic past tense works to guarantee that God will bring down the humble, it also works to guarantee that he will exalt those of humble estate. I'm sorry, that God's guarantee brings down the proud. It also guarantees that he will bring up the humble. This doesn't mean that simply because you are poor you might get to heaven. It means that if you are humble in spirit... If you comprehend your smallness, if you comprehend your need, then you are in a position to magnify God the way that Mary did. Listen to her song. He who is mighty has done great things. Holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him. He has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has helped his servant in remembrance of his mercy. We all have a hunger. We all have a need. But Christmas is a story of reversal. It becomes Christmas when you, when God opens your eyes to the fact that he is the only thing big enough to fill that ache. That he's the only thing worth worshiping. If you ponder and you find yourself worshiping wealth, wealth is really not what you seek. But the one who owns the animals and the sheep on a thousand hills, whose kingdoms, whose kingdom is filled with streets of gold, he is the creator of all gold, silver, and diamonds. If you find yourself worshiping power, power is not really what you seek, but the one who spoke the universe into existence, the one who makes the blind to see, the one who makes the dead to breathe. His power is unmatched. If you find yourself worshiping beauty, beauty is not what you seek. But it is the one who is fairer than them all. The one who is behind every sunrise and sunset, every smile, every flower. Anything that is beautiful has its source in him. What you really seek is a baby born in a manger who would become the risen savior and take away the reproach among men. Jesus is the only thing worth beholding, the only thing worth worshiping. And I would ask you this Christmas to behold him, your Savior. Pause like Mary, grounded in scripture, and think about who he is, the one who works through great reversals. I began this sermon by telling you of my love for Christmas songs. Would you join me in prayer? And I'll use the lyrics from one of my favorite Christmas songs. Father, the tree of life my soul has seen. 
laden with fruit and always green. The trees of nature, fruitless be, compared with Christ the apple tree. His beauty does all things excel, by faith I know but ne'er can tell. The glory which I now can see is Jesus Christ the apple tree. For happiness I long have sought and pleasure dearly I have bought. I missed it all, but now I see tis found in Christ the apple tree. I'm weary with my former toil. Here I'll sit and rest a while. Under the shadow I will be of Jesus Christ the apple tree. His fruit doth make my soul to thrive. It keeps my dying faith alive, which now my soul in haste will be with Jesus Christ the apple tree. Father, would you give us a heart grounded in Scripture, thoughtful in nature that worships you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.